0: It's hard to feel free when the world is crashing down around us and we're shut up in our homes practicing social distancing. But you don't have to feel trapped. You can write your way to freedom. Welcome to the Right Away Podcast. Hello, friends. I'm your host, Chris Kane, and I'm recording this on April 28th, 2020. This is episode two of the Right Away Podcast. Um, my weekly update. I am making good progress with a Cozy Mystery, which I'm extremely excited about. I've been spending loads of time researching herbal magic as my character is a green witch, and I was gonna say entirely too much time, but I don't think that's true. It does slow my writing down a little, but it's enjoyable and it doesn't stop my writing, and it adds to the story, I think. Uh, yesterday felt like a particularly slow day. I'd taken a few days off, um and that getting back to the computer that first day is always a little more difficult um and i was writing in 20 minute sprints with some friends when i normally do 10 minute sprints and then with the research i was getting lower word counts than normal for me but at the end of the day i was surprised to find that i had just under 2000 words with about 2 hours a little less than of you know button chair hands on keyboard time And all I needed was 88 more words to hit 2000, but I'm not a night person. And it was past nine o'clock in the evening, which meant I was an absolute pumpkin. I want to move on to the interview um, with my dear friend, Jay Thorne. But I wanted to note that Jay mentions a couple of upcoming projects. Uh, We recorded this a few months ago. And those projects, um, an amazing podcast called Writers Inc. with um, J.D. Barker and his book on Storycraft with his partner, Zach Bohannon, which is called three story method. They are both live and I will have links to them in the show notes. Um, I hope you enjoy the interview. I would like to welcome my dear friend and mentor Jay Thorne to the podcast today. How are you Jay?
1: Oh, uh, Great Chris. How are you?
0: Pretty good. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with Jay, um, he is an author of many uh, pop uh, podcasts, post-apocalyptic novels, podcasts as well. That's true. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, with uh, three that you're currently doing every week.
1: Yes, and, and one more on the way fairly soon.
0: Ooh, exciting! <laughs> um, so that's uh, currently it's the career author um the writer's well and the author life the author life is also connected to your blog and your mastermind which i am a happy member of yes Um, with your partner zach bohannon you've got a book on on craft and and i everything story uh called the three-story method that will be out in this coming year which is all so much exciting things yes coming up
1: yeah, it's a lot of fun. I love creating stuff.
0: Um, and you have been in the writing life for quite a while now.
1: Yeah, uh, d- depending on when, when you start the clock. But uh, I started dabbling in my first long-form writing in around 2007, 2008, and published, I think, around 2009 was the first uh, thing I self-published.
0: Ooh, so a decade in.
1: Yes, yes.
0: So when you published your first book, uh, where were you in your life?
1: Uh, let's see, 10 years ago. So I had, uh, I had a day job. Uh, I was uh, in, in, in education, uh, have a wife, two kids, a mortgage. My kids would have been about seven and five or six and four uh, about that time. Uh, so they were still demanding quite a bit of attention. They're teenagers now, so they require a different kind of attention, but not not the kind that makes me have to sit on the floor with them and play, which I miss. But uh, I don't have to do that anymore. Um, and I I was, uh, you know, being an educator, I think that you know, there, it's it's not like a it's not like having a bank teller's job, or it's not like clocking in and clocking out in shift work. In that you take a lot of work home with you, and you take a lot of emotional. Uh, trauma home with you, when, especially when you're dealing with young kids, um, you, they, they, they almost become your kids. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a parenting process in a way. And uh, so it makes it really difficult, I think, for, uh, for teachers and educators in general to do anything but that because you're just so emotionally spent by the time you get home, not to mention physically exhausted. So I think for me it was it was writing was has always been an outlet and it was something that I knew I should be doing and I felt this compulsion to do it. So even though I would be exhausted and you know I'd help my wife get the kids to bed and you know finish up cleaning up the dishes and then I wanted to go to sleep or I wanted to turn on the TV but I would force myself to sit in the chair and work on the marketing and the the email list building and that sort of thing, and then the next morning I would get up an hour to two hours before the rest of the family, and try and get my words in for the day, and I I did that for years.
0: Yeah, that was a lot going on. Like so, when you were in kind of like a long term overload, like what was your definition of success at that point in your career?
1: I don't I don't even know if I was thinking about. Success at that point, I, I felt like I was so, and I was, I was so green, and I was so at the beginning of the journey that I was just trying to to keep myself in it. Like I didn't know what I didn't know, Uh, and and I was reading a ton of books, and I was listening to a ton of podcasts, and reading blogs, uh, especially in the independent publishing world. You know, Joe Conrath's blog was uh, just a goldmine. He was absolutely. He was a guy um, who had dozens of books traditionally published, kind of crossed over into indie publishing, and was documenting that on his blog. And I remember that, uh, that being incredibly helpful. Uh, Conrath was one. Uh, Scott Nicholson was another one who at the time was, was doing a lot for, for writers. And I was just trying to keep my head above water. Uh, so I think for me, success was, was s- as simple as just not giving up.
0: And a lot's changed since then. Uh, And we've talked about uh, success quite a bit. And I know that you have a much clearer definition of what success means to you now, um, when before it was just to feed your creative side, it sounds like.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. it's You develop your own metrics as you go along. At at least I think you should. Uh, I think if you let other people define success for you, that's a very dangerous place to be. And I, I don't think I've ever been there, luckily. I've, I'm, I'm quite a minimalist and essentialist by nature. I don't require a lot of, of anything really in my life. I, don't, um, I have a few guitars. And I, when I was a teenager, I bought a lot of music. Uh, so I have a CD collection, but that's sort of by default. I didn't, I didn't collect the CDs to collect them. I collected them because I liked the music, which I think is different than being a a collector these days. So I don't, uh, I don't require much. I, I love, uh, for me, what's really important is freedom. And and that's how I define success. Do I have agency over my life? And I, and I can't say that I do in all aspects. Uh, there are, you know, there are certain parts of my life I'm, I, I just continue to work on. And I, and I think that's the case for as long as you live. But it, uh, for me now, success is being able to decide what I do from the time I get up until the time I go to bed and not in a hedonistic sort of way, not, you know, that I want to be laying on a beach on an Island all the time or that I want to be, you know, jetting around with rock stars and partying, not, not that sort of freedom, but just the freedom to be able to decide what I'm going to do with my time and then have that time uh, fund my lifestyle and take care of my family. So for me, success is all about finding that, that level of independence and uh, I'm not quite exactly where I want to be yet. I, I want to be to a place where I don't have to worry as much about that. But then again, I talk to other other people who are a little further down the road from, from me on, on the journey. And they say that feeling kind of never goes away. Like, you know, you, you, you could have a, you know, a blockbuster movie that's optioned and turned into a Hollywood film. And you worry that the next thing you write isn't going to be as good. So it might not ever go away. But I think uh for me i would like to be able to not have to worry so much about some of the financial aspects of of being an independent creative because as you know chris when you're an independent creative there's no salary there's no 401k uh there's no safety net you're you're kind of on your own
0: Yeah, absolutely and i know you've gotten into um financial independence and and the fire Uh, kind of stuff lately because of that, which is, I think, really smart move for any kind of creative to do um, when freedom is your goal.
1: Yes, that's true. And and I wish FIRE, uh, which stands for financial independence, uh, retire early. I I wish that had, had been more of a prevalent thing when I was in my 20s and 30s as opposed to finding it in my late 40s, because the magic in, in that, whether you think FIRE or FIs is, is uh, a worthy aspiration or not, it's all about saving and in compound interest. So it's, it's simple math. And with compound interest, the earlier you start, the, the more it works in your favor. So I, I, there's nothing I can do about years I, I wasn't contributing to my savings the way I should have been. But I, I think it's an exciting time for... Millennials, or for people who are in their 20s and 30s and have a longer runway than I do towards that retirement age, because if you start putting away some money now and, uh, and, and do it in a wise way, uh, it's, it can have tremendous positive impacts uh, down the road.
0: Absolutely. So I know that you are a creative in more ways than one. Like you uh, are also a musician, even if you don't uh, practice or participate in that as much as you used to. Um, so how, did you ever feel like you had to choose between your creative urges in the different, uh, paths? Um, and, and what led you to be more focused on writing than music per se?
1: Yes. I, I mean, I, I would like to say no, that you don't have to choose, but I did. And, uh, you know, you, other people's experience might be different, but I was, Getting to a point where uh, I, there's, only, there's only so many minutes in the day. There's only so many hours in the week. And I, I, don't, I hate the busy as a badge mentality. I've never bought into that. We all have you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That, that's what we all have. So what we have to do is we have to decide what our priority is. And we have to make decisions based on what we feel is most important to us. And I was at a moment in my life. Uh, I don't know, This is probably going on three, four years ago, something like that. It's the last time I was in a band. I, I had this moment where I was still working full time, and the writing business was picking up. And uh, the band um, band commitments are they are a commitment. Uh, you know, we were we were practicing. You know, maybe three hours a week on a, on a, on one night, and then we would try and have a a a show or a performance at least, uh, you know, two or three times a month. So I I kind of got to a point where I just didn't physically have the minutes to fit all of that in. It was just it just wasn't logically possible. Uh, so it wasn't necessarily you know a, a shortage of creative uh, juice or anything like that. It wasn't as though you know the the band was stealing my, the creative energy from my writing it was It was simply a matter of logistics and and then, when I looked at it, I realized that uh, and, and I think most musicians would agree with me the path to making money as a musician in this day and age is extremely difficult um, yeah. it's not easy in publishing, but I think it's even more difficult in music and so I think when I looked at what the potential was and what and also sort of what my skill set was i i I'm not even an average guitar player I, I i'm I'm not even an average singer. I happen to be in a band with guys who are way better than me and uh but i i I like to think I'm a pretty good writer and i I had to be realistic with myself and say like okay, one of these is probably more like a hobby and and you know as much as much as it pains me because um I think being in a band is a lot easier than being a writer because <laughs> you can, you kind of just show up and in, in you play and you have fun and like, and, and that's it. And sometimes you record that. And I think writing is a lot more quote unquote work than, than being in a band, but uh you know, depending on the situation, but I just, yeah, you have to have that moment where you realize, okay, what, what am I really good at? And you have to be honest with yourself. Not what not do you want to do, but what, what do you think you can do? Well, what has the most potential? And I think for me, it became clear that that writing was really where I had the most potential in a, in a form of uh, creative output.
0: It's interesting that you uh, say like being a man is quote unquote easier. Um, at least it was a little bit for you, um, because I know that you're huge on collaborations. And that is a a band is a huge collaboration. Do you think that that experience is why you have been so active in pursuing collaborations as a writer?
1: Uh, I think so. I I probably has been uh, because I've been, I've, I've fought collaboration my entire life, and, and I still do to, to a degree. I, I like to think of myself as a lone wolf, which is such a fantasy. Like I know that. Uh, but I like to think like, that I'm in complete control of my own destiny and that uh, I'm the one that's going to make things happen for myself and, and no one else is going to do it for me. And to a certain degree, that's true. But I, I also have come to realize, especially over the past 10 years, that it's almost impossible to do anything like that by yourself. And and whether the collaboration is a creative collaboration with a partner, whether it means you simply have a freelance team that works on your behalf, that's collaboration. There, there are so many different types of collaboration, but um, you're right. There, there are very few, at least there were in my life, there are very few musical opportunities that did not involve other people. And when you're in a band, you have to learn how to compromise. You have to learn when to lead you have to learn when to follow and, and it's contextual. It's never the same thing twice. So, um, and then you add in the personal dynamics of being in a band, you know, when you're in a band, we all joke about it calling band drama. There's always band drama, you know, so-and-so doesn't like this person, doesn't like this person. And uh, I just watched the new uh, Netflix documentary, Nasty Cherry, uh, which is so entertaining. It's sort of like uh, a big brother, real, real world, uh, making the band kind of show but like all the drama that was in it uh was just so like i could so relate to it you know um and and i think you have to learn how to deal with that and and if you can uh that skill set whether it's in a band or in a corporate setting or if you are in a group of people with a like-minded passion you learn that skill set and it transfers across everything so it, it it's not a direct correlation uh, songwriting is not the same as as writing a story or long form storytelling, but I think the collaborative nature and the skills you develop in learning how to work with other people are, are skills you can use in all aspects of your life.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Um, I've done uh, quite a few collaborations myself uh, on my pen name um, and I'm slowly working on one with my uh, my dear friend, Tammy Valdura for an epic sci-fi space opera, um, she's an amazing world builder and I'm a very fast drafter. So it's, we're hoping that's be going to be a really good match. Yes. Um, but this is, I guess my only correlation would be, um, when I was a programmer, when we would code pair. And even then I was, I was not super excited about that because I'm same as you. Like I like being lone wolfish, but I also desire like that, that connection and that community. And I get a lot of energy out of being around people who have that same mindset.
1: Yes. Yes. I totally um, agree and with
0: that. The mastermind uh, that you've started, that I've been a part of from the beginning, the author life, has been um, a really good, different element of that same kind of energy um, and push. And uh, one of the things I like, uh, and you and I talked about this quite a bit before you started it, um, and uh, it's something you've continued to uh, consider as you've been iterating over We've we're close to completing the second round and you're going into your third, um, is you, the group is different genres. It's different skill levels. Um, and there's a lot of energy because of the gaps between that, I think.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Um, and you've been a member of masterminds before. Um, how, how did you get started in, in, in being part of masterminds
1: well i think because i because i had a career as an educator and i have a master's degree in education i spent a lot of time studying educational theory and and modalities of learning i I, i've known since i started my career in the early 90s that 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 idea of collaboration is a great way to learn and for a lot of people it's the best way to learn and I always incorporated some element of collaboration in all of my teaching assignments over the years. So I, I think for me it was it was simply a matter of tweaking what I know, what what has been proven to work for me over over years and years and years, and just implementing that into a different space where I didn't see a lot of that happening. So I think um, if anyone pays attention to especially the independent publishing circles you'll see a ton of things like webinars and online courses and big events. And those, those things are all great and they're really valuable. And I've learned a lot from them. But I also know that it's the things that don't scale that are the best for the people who attend them, which is opposite of for the person who's creating them for the person who's creating the support materials or the educational materials, it's best to scale but mm-hmm. but that 's not what 's in the best interest of the person who's attending them so that 's where the rub is, and I think that 's why I, I like to think my program is different because i 've said a number of times like the mastermind model doesn 't scale it's it's twelve people it 's me on a call with, with those twelve people from week to week, you know I, yeah, I could do several sessions, but like it's i can 't do a hundred of them and you know and I, and i wouldn 't and uh, so I think that you know the the mastermind model was something that not only did I I I taught but then when I started getting into the publishing industry it's what I sought out and I joined several masterminds over the years because I knew firsthand as an educator how effective they were and at at the bottom end of that learning curve I was like well if I can get into a mastermind with other people then it's going to help me and your point about the diversity of experience is something that I really wrestled with when I started uh mapping out what this experience might look like, because you can kind of, there's kind of two branches. There's, there's two paths you can take. And, and they're somewhat exclusive. They're somewhat mutually exclusive. You can have a, a mastermind group or a gathering of people who are very tightly niched. They are, they're within the same circles. They're writing the same genre. They have about the same amount of experience and and there's some power in that. And, and I think when you get, and, and there's a shorthand that develops, and, and then you almost get like a scene where you get people helping out each other. But I think there's a ceiling on that, which is why I went the other route. And my, the other route was I want to get as many uh, diverse opinions and experiences in the group as I can, which means I, you know, as you know, Chris, there are people in there who have never published. There are people in there who have published dozens of books and are full time writers like yourself. There are people who are writing fiction, people who are writing nonfiction, People who are younger, people who are older, living in all different parts of the country and the world. And it's all of that diversity that I think is the strength and the glue that holds the group together. And you called it an energy. I, I think that's a nice way of putting it. You know, we, we have situations where people bring their own life experience. They don't realize how valuable it is to, to other people who don't have it. And when you get into the mastermind, that's where that, that fertile ground is to create those types of connections.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And each of the people, even if they were only in for one session, um, each of those people has become uh, a friend of mine now because of the time we've spent being really open um, and honest about our fears, our problems, um, and our hopes.
1: Yes. Yes. And and I um, think too, that's a, that's a little harder to pull off when your group is very homogenous uh, mm-hmm. because everyone's worried about where they are in the, in the, strata you know where are you in the hierarchy uh if you're all if you're all very similar but if you're coming from very different backgrounds and experiences i think people are much more vulnerable they don't they don't feel that comparisonitis as much
0: that makes a lot of sense yeah um i'm also in a small group of that is my pen names genre and i can see that playing out um on a small scale because there's not many of us but it's still yeah I can definitely see where that's caused some mm-hmm. tensions between different people at different points. Um, well, I asked you to share something, either a craft tip or a business tip or a book recommendation um, with the listeners. So what do you have for them?
1: Well, I, I think as I look back over many of the books that I've read this calendar year, and one of, one of them that's... Probably been the most significant for me. It validated a lot of what I knew, and it also taught me a lot of things, filled in a lot of gaps for me. And that's a book recommendation I'm going to make, which is Atomic Habits uh, by James Cleary. That uh, it's 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 one of those very simple concepts. In that um, the premise of the book is that you don't you don't get motivated and then create. You create, which which then makes keeps you motivated. And that's, that's, a, that's a paradigm shift for a lot of people. A lot of people, especially writers, like to think that they have to create some sort of magic so that when they sit down on the chair, the muse will then you know, s- sprinkle story dust on them and, and they will get inspired and they'll write, they'll write, write great words. But the truth is you got to write shitty words and then, then they become great and then you become more inspired and motivated as you go. It's the other way around. And, and I think that in Atomic Habits, that was really drilled home to me. And, and one of the reasons why I think it might be my book recommendation of the year is not only is it the content, but I've read a ton of self-help and writing books and craft books over the years. And uh, Atomic Habits is one of the most well-written nonfiction books I've ever read. It's succinct and clear and logical, and uh, it's, 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 a, it's an easy read. You can sit down and read it in, in one, one sitting. It's fantastic.
0: Yeah. I'm a huge fan of that as well. And you're right. Like that was a mind shift for me. Like I had a rule for myself uh, because my depression, uh, when it flares up, it keeps me from moving forward a lot of times because of all those negative voices in my head. And so I had a rule that's just one thing, uh, just do one thing. Um, and, and chances are you'll probably do more, but if you do just one thing, then you've succeeded today. Um, and, uh, and that is, that, that is, he puts it in much clearer words and in better science about why that works. Um, and, and it was a mind mindset sh- shift for me to hear it in his words and be like, oh, that's why just one thing works. Like, I don't have to fuss at myself that I'm not motivated and then force myself to do one thing. Everybody does that no matter how difficult or minor it is. Like everyone does that. So you have to do just one thing and then you do another thing and then you start being excited to do more things. Yes,
1: yes. And the, the other part of Atomic Habits that I think is really powerful and it, it kind of goes against the grain, um, although less so now, but uh, it's really prioritizing systems and habits over goals. Mm-hmm. And and he goes into great detail as to why uh, goal setting alone is is detrimental to your goals. <laughs> like you need to have some directions to where you're going, but you don't accomplish the goals by by setting the marker. W- w- the way you accomplish the goals is you create the systems and the habits that will by default get you there. Um, and, and I think he, he goes into great detail on how to do that. And I think that's, that's been another profound shift for me. I mean, even you know, up until 15 years ago in the classroom, I would have students setting goals, but I didn't ever sort of create the systems for them to, that they could reach them. And I I see that now. I see it so clearly. I wonder why I didn't see it (laughs) so many years earlier, but, you know, I, I, it's, it's a revelation. And I think once you, once you realize that you also take some of the pressure off, you know, the the example that uh, Zach and I always use on the, on the career author podcast is we say, you know, if you set a goal to write 2000 words a day and you write, 1,974, you've technically failed, but have you? And like, is that the mindset you want to have? Like, do you want to have come that close to 2,000 words and think of yourself as a failure? Like, I, I don't think so. Um, so, you know, it, it's a it's a very siloed example, but I think it's one worth considering. And, uh, and And you'd be better off instead of saying, I want to get 2,000 words a day, you say, okay, every day at 7 a.m. till 7.20 a.m., I'm going to sit in this chair and I'm going to do nothing but type. And if I type five words or 50 words or 500 words, that's all I'm going to do. And I'm going to do that every single day. There's where I think you then start to turn those habits into something real.
0: And build that life of freedom that you want. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much uh, for sharing with me today. And I will have links to everything we've mentioned in this conversation in the show notes. Um, And thank you so much, Jay. I will talk to you later.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Chris.